and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I'm your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And once again, welcome back to Horror Month on Staff Picks, where we do eight horror movies, ones that I think are especially good and evil and underrated, and I try to get more people to appreciate them. And today's episode is one I am especially interested in, because this is, I would consider, one of the most evil movies of all time. It will get under your skin. It's a psychological thriller. It's one I have been recommending for pe- to people for like two decades, and I am talking about the 2000 one masterpiece session nine set in an abandoned mental institution and oh boy is this a fun movie to talk about and it's one i have been dying to do on staff picks for like two years now and i'm very excited i finally found a co-host who not only really loves this movie but really knows this movie, and he actually has an especially interesting connection with the plot of this movie. So I want to bring him on, and we'll delve right into this movie. Uh, Let's see, he is a lawyer from uh, New Orleans, from Louisiana, and uh, I I will let him tell you the rest of the story, because it's very fascinating. Welcome to Staff Picks to talk about Session 9, Sean McAllister. Thanks, Mario. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, Yeah, just to kind of go over the little story, so... I'm an attorney in Louisiana, one of the nice ones, and we kind of have a bunch of different um, practices that we do, but the connection to Session 9 is that we do what's called judicial commitments, which is when you represent a hospital, like a Danvers State Hospital, and uh, a patient has been involuntarily committed, and they are not ready to be released, but under the law, they have to be released after a certain amount of time. So you have to petition the court to have them committed for longer because they're either a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So I have the role of keeping these people in a safe place and having them judicially committed so that they're not harmful to themselves or others until they get better. You know, unfortunately, sometimes they don't, but that's my job. (laughs) You know, what's funny for my listeners is that I, Sean is someone I've known through Twitter for a while, and he has uh, expressed some interest in coming on to Staff Picks to talk about a horror movie. And I said, you know, I'm looking for a host. I named a couple movies, and I said Session 9. And I did not know he did these commits of mentally uh, unstable people until like two minutes before we started recording. I just learned this. I'm very excited here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I figured I'd save that one for you. And it's you, you named a couple of movies in Session 9. I don't, I don't even think I saw some of the other movies. I just knew that this was the one that we had to talk about. <laughs> and, uh, now, okay, I'm not assuming all of my listeners know this movie. So I will give you the quick overview is that this is, again, one of the most evil and nastiest horror movies I can think of because it will lodge in your psyche and never leave. It's basically a... A uh, hazmat crew that is assigned to clean an old abandoned mental asylum, a huge institution called the Danvers Mental Hospital. And while they're in there, strange things happen in their heads and everything goes awry and it ends very poorly. That's the short version. Right, right. Yeah, basically five guys in the team and it goes downhill pretty quick. <laughs> and it's got a wonderfully open-ended ending that... I have been debating with people for 20 years. Now, now, Sean, you know this movie very well. Have you found the same thing that you talk about this movie with people a lot? Yeah, and the interpretation's always different. And I was kind of fascinated to find out that critically when the movie came out, a lot of critics didn't like 
that the ending was open-ended, but that's actually like my favorite part mm -hmm. is that we can have these conversations with people and that I can say, I think it's this way and somebody can say, no, I think it's that way. I think that's one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, I totally agree. It's This is a movie, again, I have recommended to people for 20 years. I used to have a website list called 10 Great Horror Movies Most People Have Never Seen. I've already talked about a bunch of them on Staff Picks. This is one of them. This is one of the stars of that list. And I don't even remember how I first heard about Session 9. I think I remember back in like the mid-2000s, it just popped up on some list of underrated horror movies. Like, I don't even remember here. Like, do you remember remember where you first heard about it? That was almost the, the the identical way that I found out about it, was that I didn't hear about it when it came out in theaters. I don't think it came out in many theaters. I, it wasn't direct-to-video. I know it was a release, but I definitely didn't see it when it was in theaters. And I found it when I was looking for specifically a horror movie that is unsettling. That's, like, my favorite description of a movie like this. And you got other movies like Hereditary, the Witch, that kind of falls under it. So I found a list that had those movies, and this was on it, and I really didn't even consider it just because, you know, I was like, oh, David Caruso, not a lot of other people I heard at the time. I didn't really give it a chance, but then I was like, you know what, let's just watch it. And I was I was hooked. I, like, rewatched it the next day. It's great. Yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned the rewatch because that's been my experience as well. This movie's really fun the first time you watch it, but there's a lot of questions. It will open in your mind because it's kind of told out of sequence at times it's a little confusing you really need to watch it the second time when you realize what you're watching and you realize how nasty this movie is and that's why i'm glad you said that and that's we're, we're actually i'm going to warn people we're going to give away some spoilers as we're talking through the plot just because i think you will appreciate it more if i do that yeah i agree with that 100 percent. i mean the first time i watched it i was like okay this is a like a slow burn type movie, which is how a lot of people describe it. And, you know, the actions kind of pace slowly at times, but the ending kind of just blows your socks off. And then the second time you watch it, you're kind of watching for what you missed on the original watch, you know, which there's a lot of things that you watch the second time and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense now that I know what's happening. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite types of movies. The like this, I have a lot of them I've done on staff picks. The more you watch them, the more you appreciate them. They're all built for rewatches. Um, one more thing I wanted to add. Again, I do not recommend movies on staff picks that are especially gory. I don't do torture movies. I don't do cheap jump scare movies for the most part, with the small exception of Drag Me to Hell because I love Sam Raimi. But that's about it. But this movie in particular, there is not a single jump scare in this movie. There's barely any gore at all, and we'll, okay, well, I'll mention the L word here, lobotomy. We'll, we'll get into that. But other than that, this is a goreless movie. It's amazing how much atmosphere and dread they build in this movie, despite not using any cheap crutches. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's definitely a disturbing movie. I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but there's a lot of things that happen or stories that are retold that'll kind of, like, cut you to your core and it's kind of cool and it's kind of why I like this movie is that you know it came out in the early 2000s and that's right around like the what I call like the torture porn era of uh of horror movies when it was like Saw and Hostel and all it was was blood and gore and stuff and this didn't have that and it didn't need it or like the cheap jump scares you get from like the late 90s movies didn't need that either and it was better than all those movies you know but it was still it still disturbs you you're still you're gonna leave uh leave your watch and kind of wonder what the hell just happened. <laughs> yeah, it will disturb you on a different level. 
And those, again, my favorite types of horror movies. They just kind of lodge right under your skin, and you will think about them later. Again, the highest compliment I could give to any horror movie right there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and before we get into the plot, again, it's a pretty simple plot, but it gets intricate in the way it's told. But we do have to talk about the star of this movie. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, Sean. I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about a place. Oh, yeah, Danvers State Hospital, a.k.a. the State Lunatic Asylum at Danvers is what it used to be called. That is the star in the movie. And I think the stars of the movie, the actual actors, will tell you that if you call it the behind the scenes. That's the main attraction, the actual hospital itself. Yeah, for people who have not seen this movie, big, old, creepy, real-life mental institution where they would lock the craziest of the crazies away and do horrible things to them. Think of, like, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, stuff like that. This was a real hospital in Massachusetts, and it was abandoned for many years. And, like, kids would sneak up there for ghost tours and go there and graffiti. It was one of the creepiest places ever in real life. And somehow they got permission to film in it before it was torn down in the i think early 2000s at some point but it's like one of the only movies that has ever been filmed in there and it's so damn creepy it is easily the star of the movie oh yeah and it's it's i just love the idea of a abandoned places that have had a history of like crazy stuff that's happening there i just love that idea and movies that are set in that kind of place but also like the old school mental hospital with like the padded rooms and just the 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 straight jackets and the wheelchairs shown about. I mean, they take full advantage of the setting they had because it's spooky. I mean, every corner that they turn is is pretty terrifying. And if you watch the behind the scenes, the actors are like, yeah, I'm scared shitless. Like this is, this is scary. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. The actors in real life did not want to be in this building. It was so terrifying. In fact, the, the main star, Peter Mullen, I believe his name is, he had said at one point that he was on the roof of the institution at one point during filming. And he literally heard a voice in his head say, jump off, see what happens. And he's like, fuck no, I'm I'm not standing on this roof anymore. (laughs) Yeah. He was like, Oh, it was just a curiosity. You know, I was like, he just said it so nonchalantly. Like, yeah, that's just what happens when you're here. You just get crazy thoughts like that. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to be there. I'm good. <laughs> so when you're committing people to places nowadays in you know, the 21st century, they are not like the Danvers institution anymore, correct? Yeah, you don't call them lunatics. You don't lobotomize them or do any electroshock therapy. Like Mental health has fortunately come a long way, even though it's, it's, the funding has been cut dramatically, the focus a lot more is on like psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, ways to kind of manage these people because a lot of things, uh, a lot of disorders and abnormal psychology like that is is incurable. So uh, back in the day, they just throw you in a room and and feed you a couple times a day. It was kind of like a little prison. Now they kind of focus more on like, how can we treat you? How can we make this as smooth as possible on this ride of life with the hand that you were dealt? that we can. So yeah, it's, it's not, you, you don't see big sprawling institutions like you do at Danvers anymore. They're a lot more localized. States don't have the budget like that. And the treatment is a little bit more humane and ethical, which is definitely a, a turn in the right direction, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a plus. Yeah. Yeah. Plus. <laughs> well, I'm glad you answered my next question. I can cross this off my list. Have you ever personally given someone a lobotomy? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the curiosity, like Peter Mullen said, kind of comes in. But I've I've refrained from myself. You know, just the the idea that that actually happened in real life, it just blows my mind. Like, I think the most famous case is uh, with JFK's sister mm-hmm. or something, and that they gave her a lobotomy because I'm sure she wasn't even doing anything wrong. It's just, just that early 60s way of, like, looking at like sexist way of looking at women or whatever. And they were like, oh, she's too rowdy. Let's lobotomize her. And it's like, uh, <laughs> we could have probably just ignored her or something, but that's okay. You know? So no, I, <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard about the effects of it and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but like I've, I've decided to, to just be a little more of a pacifist in my life. <laughs> That's good. That's what I look for in the uh, the co-host of staff picks, the ability to, you know, hold off and not lobotomize people. So that's good. That's why I picked you, Sean. Yeah, just don't stab somebody through the eye. It's 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 really simple. It's really easy not to do that. So yeah, I'm glad you picked me. <laughs> okay, yeah, and he's giving away. We'll we'll talk about that. So again, the one little bit of violence or gore in this movie is that is how you would give someone a lobotomy back in the day. Ice pick right into the orbital bone, right through the eye socket, printed by the by the the nose. Move it up and down, scramble the brain, and that's how you would de aggression somebody. <laughs> so we'll see that in this movie. We'll see that a little bit. A little bit, yeah. That's just anything that has to do with eyes just freaks me out in horror movies like that. And this, like you said, this movie doesn't have a lot of violence, but you know, when it hits you, it hits you. <laughs> okay, and again, we're going to get into the plot in a second. One last thing is that for Horror Month, it's funny, I've already done one movie this October where the setting or the building was the star of the movie, an old abandoned place. It was creepy. And they're just like, Hey, that place is cruel. Let's let's cool. Let's film a movie there. And that was carnival of souls. Are you familiar with carnival of souls? You know, I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with it. It's, it's at a carnival. Well, it's it's an old abandoned resort, like an amusement park in Salt Lake City. It was called the Saltair Resort, and it was it burned down in a fire, and it sat there abandoned for many years. And they just set a movie there just because it was abandoned and creepy, which is exactly like this movie. So I just think it's funny I'm doing them both in the same month this year. I'm telling you, man, abandoned places like that that have a long history and that for whatever reason hasn't been torn down, that that just spooks me out, man. There's just something about that, that like, you know, just spend the night there and see what happens, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Okay, so here we go. We're going into session nine, which you may find this interesting, although I bet you've already heard this. It has often been described as a retelling of The Shining. I have heard that comparison before. For. And, you know, I can I can see it, but it is very much uniquely its own movie. But, you know, as far as like the Overlook Hotel and Danvers State Hospital, I, I definitely see those comparisons. Yeah. OK, we'll get into that at the end, because when I talk through the plot, my listeners, well, you will understand why I bring up that comparison. Okay, so here we go. It's the story of really just a cleaning crew, and the movie starts with these two guys. One of them, Peter Mullen, is the actor. He plays a guy named Gordon, and then uh, David Caruso, who a lot of people don't like, but he's <laughs> he's good in this. He plays a guy named Phil. It's just Gordon and Phil. They're these two buddies that basically run a hazmat service. Yeah, they're, I believe they're an asbestos cleaning crew, I believe it is. And, uh, yeah, falling on a little bit of hard times. Uh, looks like so you know heading to the job seeing what happens yeah this is a basically we're going to learn some backstory real quick the leader of the group gordon he has kind of fallen on hard times his business is not going well he's been losing out on bids this is the only money he really has in his life 
and he has some stressors in his life. He has a new wife and a new baby, and it's really driving him crazy because he's got all these pressures and stuff he didn't have before financially and stuff. So this is a big deal. They're going up to this Danvers Mental Hospital, and they're bidding for the rights to clean it, and they really need this job. And we This will become very important to the plot later. Yeah, and there was already two bids, I believe, from other companies, and that's kind of how these companies work, you know, get they just give the job to the lowest bidder. Um, and so they've already had two bids, so he's already kind of like on the ropes, and this is this is a, a make-or-break opportunity. So they get in, and we meet the guy, the groundskeeper of Danvers, which, again, a real place. They did not dress up this building at all for the movie. They just walked in there and started filming basically as it was. I think there's only, like, two rooms they even added any props to at all. Everything else is exactly as it was. And the guy's showing him around. And what what do they, I kind of forget, what do they see when they're first touring the hospital? They see a, a wheelchair that's just kind of sitting by itself, illuminated, surrounded by darkness, but illuminated right in the middle of a hall. And it kind of transfixes them for a little bit. But then they see like uh, hydrotherapy tubs and they talk about lobotomies. I mean, it's just, the place is just tore up. But the wheelchair is kind of the focal point of what they see. You kind of get, can't get your eyes off of it. Yeah, that is the symbol of the movie, much like The Changeling, another movie I've covered on Staff Picks, the creepy abandoned wheelchair. And it's just kind of sitting in a hall. But yeah, let's see. We The building's shaped like a big bat. It's like the men run one wing, the women run the other. And this uh, we hear some history. This place was here from 1871 to 1985. And it eventually closed down for budgetary reasons. And basically all the patients here, they had nowhere to put them. So they just threw them out in the streets. So all these, the craziest of the crazies were just let go. And some wandered back in here and lived in the walls. Homeless people have lived here, squatters. It's just a creepy, you know, creaky place where you don't, again, you would not want to be in this building at dark. It's very ominous. Yeah, and that's a that's a real thing too. Is uh, you know, I have my my degree in undergrad was in psychology, so I learned a lot about like the recency things or the things that have happened recently in psychology and why these places closed down and why there's so many more mentally unhealthy people on the streets or in jail. And it's because budget cuts and stuff like that closes places like this down. And where else are you going to put them? You know, you can't just throw them in jail. You just let them go on the street. And so when you actually have a place like this and people are coming back, you know, that's that says a lot right there. But I mean, this this movie was filmed in what, 2000 the place got abandoned in 1992. So that's eight years worth of time for just time to just kind of take over. And the place is decayed and falling apart. I mean, it makes sense why you need an, uh, an asbestos cleaning crew to come in. But it's just like you said, it's creaky. I mean, the sound design is so good in this movie. I mean, there's no moments of silence. There's either like water dripping or the walls whirring or something. I mean, this this the whole place is, is terrifying. Yeah, I've often said they could have no plot in this movie and it would still be scary. <laughs> it could just be dudes cleaning the walls and it would be scary. <laughs> yeah, the show is every room. I would totally watch that. <laughs> okay, so the plot in the movie, now this isn't real life. In real life, they bulldozed this place. But the plot in the movie is that the owners of the building want to reclaim it and fix it up. So they've called in hazmat crews to clean up and, and get all the asbestos and all the outdated, you know, structural stuff fixed up. So they need someone to fix it up. And uh, the, the guy helpfully tells our cleaning crew, he's, oh, he's like, you know, the prefrontal frontal lobotomy was perfected here. So <laughs> that's always a good trivia note. 
Yeah, that's that's something to hang your hat on is that you perfected stabbing somebody in the brain. That's tremendous. <laughs> I remember uh, on Weekend Update Saturday Night Live, Norm MacDonald made a joke about that when the inventor of the prefrontal lobotomy died and Norm made a joke. He's like, if you don't remember, this involves taking an ice pick, stabbing it in someone's brain and scrambling it up into scrambled eggs. And he's like, what a genius. He'll be missed. <laughs> yeah. Only Norm could deliver that so perfectly. I'm telling you, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's a real joke. Somebody go look that up. I remember that. Okay. So there's a big cemetery behind this place where all the people who died in captivity were are buried, and they don't even have names. There's just numbers. Again, this is probably the creepiest setting I have ever seen for a horror movie. And it will get worse right at the start because Gordon – our leader, who is under a lot of stress with the wife and the baby at home, he's kind of looking down a hallway, looking at this wheelchair, and he hears a voice in his head. And this will be one of the great unseen characters in the movie. It just says, Hello, Gordon. <laughs> That's when I knew we were in for a ride when I heard that, because it's, it's just, you hear the voice itself. I mean, the voice can read poetry and it would still be scary. And yeah, you just hear, Hello, Gordon, and oh, man. That's where things already get kicked started early yeah we're in an abandoned asylum the creepiest setting ever in a horror movie and there's already you know spiritual voices that sound very evil talking to people so this movie is not going to go well just strap in this is going to be a disturbing one <laughs> yeah yeah it tells you how bad to do you need the job you hear a voice like that and you're like well i need the money Go forward with it. <laughs> See, yeah, they, that usually, when I hear the, the voice of Satan talking to me, I usually will not bid on a project. But Gordon, he plows through with it. Yeah, you got to go home if you hear the voice of Satan. That's just one of those things where you just got to pretend it never happened and move on with your life. <laughs> it's the equivalent of if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. It's the same, basically the same <laughs> logic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so Gordon, again, Gordon really needs this job because he's got a wife and kid at home. He's trying to support his business is failing. So this is a three week job to clean this up with a, a four man crew, I believe. And Gordon says, well, it's normally a three week job, but we'll do it in two. And the foreman's like, two? No, that seems odd to me. And then Gordon lowers it even further because he really wants this job. He's like, we can do it in one. He basically outbids himself. Yeah, which is like, you know, I think they may have had one other bid that said two weeks, or maybe the guy was bluffing, but Gordon wasn't playing around. He said one week, which, I mean, I think everybody in the crew thought that was crazy. Because, this, I mean, if you see the building, it's like, how could you get anything done in one week there, you know? I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, but again, this is the plot, that Gordon really needs this job, and this whole plot of this movie, and we're going to give away some spoilers, is there's a subplot that... People who are under a lot of stress in their life need a release valve. And Gordon, we will find out very quickly, does not have a release valve and it will it will it will not go well. Okay. So let's go to the first scene here. This is one of the most important scenes of the movie, but the way the story is told, you don't realize it until the second time you watch the movie, or I guess maybe later in the movie. But this is where Gordon gets the bid, he wins it, and he goes home to celebrate with his wife and the new baby. Yeah, and he's just sitting in his car. He's got some roses. He's His wife and baby come outside and just see him, kind of wave to him and come back in. And he kind of, like, is looking pensive as he sits in the driver's seat, which is, you know, foreshadowing I won't get into yet. And then, yeah, then he goes in the house, and she's like, oh, roses, what's the occasion? And then all of a sudden you just hear a scream, and it cuts on to the next scene. 
Yeah, that's a very important scene. You don't know that until later in the movie, that he has gone home with the flowers to celebrate with his wife and a scream. You hear a scream or a very ominous noise, but you don't know exactly what happened. And you'll find out later. Okay, so now we cut to the next week. This is the week of the cleaning of Danvers. And we meet the five-man crew. And again, I'm going to throw out names at you. They will mean nothing to you. We have Gordon, Phil, Hank, Mike, and Jeff. And we'll kind of try to keep them straight as we talk through it. But it's a five-man crew that have been tasked with the impossible. Clean this place in a week. And if you do, you get a $10,000 bonus each. Yeah, which, I mean, that's you better get... Ten thousand dollars if you're gonna clean a place like that in in a week. But I mean, as far as the characters, you know, this is where you meet Hank, who I just can't I can't move on without discussing this crazy dude. How he he basically is introduced to us by making fun of Phil because he's banging Phil's ex wife, <laughs> and he lets Phil know that repeatedly, like, oh, Amy says hi, you know, I got yeah, I, I'll keep it up or whatever. <laughs> it's just like. I've never I've never known anybody who would actually have like the balls to to do this, you know? He's just such an asshole. That's not how it works in the world of lawyers. I mean, yeah, honestly, you know, there probably is a couple of lawyers who are like that. That's actually a really good point. You know, just narcissistic and ballsy. Hank would be a perfect lawyer. He's not like Mike. I know Mike Mike dropped out of law school after a year, but uh, but Hank, no, Hank, Hank's built for it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of the interesting things this movie does is will create tension within the group where they don't like each other, they have a gripe with each other, and it will build and build as working in this evil place gets into their heads. But at the end of the movie, it's all kind of a red herring. It's distracting you from the real plot. Yeah, in a way, I see a lot of parallels to The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, where it's just a group of guys, you know, kind of like The Thing. There really isn't a, a, a woman who's a main character or even like a really supporting character in this movie at all. I mean, more than peripherally. But like paranoia is a big running theme where they kind of get at each other's throats and you're kind of wondering like, you know, is somebody breaking or, or is it just like the tension between the guys? But yeah, you're right. It, it all kind of comes to a head in a much different way. First off, Sean, how dare you say there's no female characters in this movie when we have Mary Hobbs, who is at minimum four different characters. <laughs> yeah. I, right when, I, right when that, that came out of my mouth, I was like, well, you know, you, I guess there is a woman in this. I mean, uh, allegedly, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different women technically, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Mary Hobbs and Patricia Willard are the two the two ones that really stand out. Okay, yeah, let's talk about Patricia Willard. Okay, so we learned a lot of exposition in this movie. Again, there's a lot going on. Even though it's a slow burn movie, I'm always shocked at how fast it goes when you watch it because you're kind of engrossed in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Once, especially once you rewatch it and you know what is actually happening, it, it, it goes a lot faster. And the, the, the things kind of connect to each other a lot more where it's like, okay, this, this, this is foreshadowing. This is exactly what I should have been paying attention to. And I didn't when I first watched it, like it, it does move. The, the pacing is really, really good in this movie, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of clues to what's going to come later, but you don't notice it till the second viewing. 
And, uh, okay, so here we go. So we learn Gordon, the main guy, the one under all the pressure, is a safety stickler. He will not abide any safety violations on his crew ever. He's kind of humorless. He's very calm. He's just a very methodical, rules-oriented guy. And he kind of gets on people's cases the first day because they're slacking off or they're goofing around. And you just see kind of the dynamic of the crew. But what's the most interesting thing on the first day is we learn why this facility was shut down. That there was a lawsuit in 1984, or a scandal, called the Patricia Willard scandal. And I'm sure you'd love to talk about this one, Sean. What, what happened in the scandal? Oh, yeah, this was insane. I mean, the writers must have just had a ball right in this scandal. <laughs> so uh, Patricia Willard was a patient there, and they were using this technique called repressed memory therapy, where I guess they do some kind of technique, and they get down to the memories that she has, the traumatic memories that she Oh, supposedly has can kind of get to the root of her problems. So they're doing this therapy and Patricia reveals just the, the craziest stuff that her father raped her like three times a week. He'd come into her room in a black robe and take her to the woods and the whole family would be there and they'd all rape her. And it, I mean, it, it's like, I don't, the writers just, they must've just thought like, what is the worst thing we can do to a child? And let's make this the Patricia Willard scandal because like, they they eat a newborn baby and they force her to have an abortion. I mean, make her eat feces. It's just it's just everything. But then the twist is that it turns out that she sued the family countersued, and they they end up finding out that Patricia was a virgin. So none of that stuff happened. So this therapy basically planted these memories in her head. And caused this entire controversy where she accused her whole family of probably the most heinous stuff I've ever heard. So, of course, the family wins the countersuit. That and budget cuts gets the whole place shut down. And I had read that that story was based on a real-life lawsuit sometime around this time when, again, uh, doctors in these mental institutions at the time were doing very unethical things and basically planting memories into people's heads, trying to get them to lead into a lawsuit. And so I think what you said, the writers were just coming up with stuff. I think that was all based on real lawsuits that shut down some of these places. And that's that goes to the whole truth is stranger than fiction thing that I always love to say and love to see. Because, yeah, I mean, I can see that. And when you think about just how unethical these places were with the stuff like the lobotomies or uh, the crazy electroshock therapy and planting memories in people's heads, that's not that's not out of their own possibility. So yeah, this the fact that that's real doesn't even surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, again, this movie nothing could happen and it would still be creepy just because of the subject matter you're going into. And again, none of that uh, Patricia Willard scandal has factors into the plot at all. It's just setting the scene for what types of things were done in this institution to people, and where it does come into later is later on the first day. Again, this movie happens over four days. They don't even make it to the fifth day before tragedy happens. Is uh, One of the guys, Mike, the cleaners, he's a law student, and as he's in the basement, he sees a bunch of evidence down there by the morgue. There's this really creepy section of the basement where all these boxers are stored, and he happens to see this one box that looks especially interesting called Evidence, and it's really creepy. Like the light bulb flashes above it twice, kind of signaling him to go over and look at it. Did you notice that? 
I did. I did. I noticed on the second viewing, the first time, of course, you see and you're like, oh, okay, the electricity is kind of wonky. But the second time I was like, okay, that looked a little intentional. Yeah. So Mike is kind of summoned over to this box of evidence and inside are nine tapes. And this is the plot of the movie. If you look wondering where the title session nine comes from, it is a patient named Mary Hobbs, who was once a patient in this fine institution. And she went through exactly what we just heard about at the Patricia Willard scandal, this repressed memory therapy, where a psychiatrist was interviewing her, trying to figure out, we will find out later, why she killed her entire family on Christmas when she was 14. And Mike's going to sit down. He's like, oh, these will be interesting tapes to listen to. And Mary sat down for nine sessions with the doctor, sessions one through nine. And as Mike listens to these tapes through the movie and Mary's story is going to get more and more more twisted. Once we get to that ninth session, when you hear the reveal of why she killed her family, it really ties into the plot of the people cleaning the the sanitary or the cleaning the hospital. So these two stories will dovetail together, but you don't realize it until later. Yeah, that's one of that kind of goes back to the the pacing thing I was talking about. How these the, as as each session gets just more intense and just builds up the atmosphere and just builds up the terror. And then as the what's happening in the movie that's building up on the exact same parallel street that that the sessions are going on. So it just gets more and more intense until it hits a crescendo with session nine. Obviously the the namesake, but that's. That's the ending, yeah. So these tapes are very important. And I would argue these tapes are probably the most memorable part of this movie. Like the, the institution, the Danvers Hospital is the setting, and it's awesome. But when I think about this movie, I just think about these tapes because they're so creepy. You're listening to this woman who killed her family, and a doctor's interviewing her, and he's trying to draw out the story of why she killed her family. And this guy, Mike, is just listening to these old tapes from 20 years ago. And the woman has, as we learned earlier, repressed memory syndrome, where she has hidden this evil side of her, why she did this, and she has developed multiple personalities. So you hear her doing different personalities throughout the tapes, and they're all creepy. You got the princess, you got Billy. There's one called Simon. Simon is the main one. He's the evil entity that was inside her. We will meet Simon much later in session nine, but he's the big one as we hear her cycle through all her voices with the doctor. Yeah, and they got it like they almost have to get through the other voices to get to Simon. So they keep on asking these voices about Simon. Sometimes the voices or the personalities, I should say, since she's got dissociative identity disorder, you know, it's aka multiple personality disorder. So, you know, they're asking about it and they'll kind of sidestep the issue. But it's like the doctors know that like Simon is their target whenever they're talking to Mary or the princess or Billy or whatever, but that each personality has is, is a personality. So they have their own like unique voice or cadence or whatever. I mean, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And okay. So, and this is where, again, in horror movies, people start doing stupid things. Um, as always, you will see plenty of that behavior in session nine is Mike. The, one of the cleaners is so fascinating by these old, you know, interview tapes with Mary Hobbs that when the cleaning crew leaves for the day, he decides he's going to stay there at night in the dark all by himself because he wants to listen to more tapes, which don't do that. That's a bad idea. Like, he couldn't just take it home. Like, that's one of the things. Like, dude, I wouldn't even listen to one tape in that place. That's just bad juju right there, dude. You just got to take that 
stuff. I mean, who's who's gonna tell you something? Like, just sneak it out. <laughs> Instead, he's like, oh, I'm gonna take it. Home. I'm I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna stay late and listen to it. And Gordon's like, okay, just don't stay after dark or whatever. It's like, why would you even risk being in there? Like, it's such a big place that like, you wouldn't get lost. I mean, it just yeah, like you said, people always gotta do stupid stuff. And I, right when I saw that, I was like, oh, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> and that's that's the thing I gotta point out about this movie. It has such a thick layer of dread as you're watching it. You know something's going to happen. The music, the pacing, and what, what kills me is that nothing ever happens. You're waiting for a jump scare. You're waiting for some demon, something to crash. It never, ever happens. So it's like it almost dovetails in with the plot of the movie. You never have that safety valve that releases all the pressure. Which they say about Gordon? Oh, he, you know, he, uh, he never cracks. He's stoic. He, and we will find out later. Gordon does crack because he never releases pressure like other people do. But it's, it basically ties in with the movie as well because it's just dread, 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 and there's never a release, and it builds up so hard. And that's that's so funny because like that's the same criticisms that I see people make are the exact reason why I like the movie. Some people are like, oh, I don't like the pacing. Nothing really happens until the ending and it's like well that's kind of the point though it's like you're you're feeling this this terror and this unsettled feeling the entire time and you're like almost on guard and waiting for something to happen and then like little things happen but nothing like crazy no jump scares no no insane like you know murder or something like that nothing really happens like that but that makes it more scary because ultimately the ending is going to hit you right in the mouth and you're almost your guard's almost down at that point you know and it's like that's that's one of the best parts of the movie is that just the feeling of dread the sound design the score and like the tension between the characters i mean it all just builds up so great it's funny i'm I'm glad you mentioned that because a couple of months ago i said oh i'm watching session nine and i said i think i wrote on facebook this movie is hardcore and I had a couple people really took offense with that term. They're like, that movie's the opposite of hardcore. But it's like, it really depends on how you define hardcore. That's It's really an interesting discussion here. Yeah, I mean, once we get to the ending, we can we can talk about whether it's hardcore or not. But yeah, I mean, this movie's hardcore. Like, I don't know how you can... <laughs> but when we get to the ending, I'll, I'll make sure to bring it up again. But like, this is the definition of hardcore. I mean, I just... <laughs> We'll talk about it, but like, yeah, no, I agree with you, man. That's great. Yeah, I mean, and not in a modern sense. There's not 800 buckets of blood, people getting sawed in half. But yeah, psychologically, this I would rank this up with like Blair Witch Project, something that really unnerves you if you watch it in the dark. It's just got that that feeling that's hard to capture. I think what it is too is that like this movie can happen in real life, or like the Patricia Willow thing, like it happened in real life, and that's what makes it so much more unsettling is movies like that, as opposed to like you know Nightmare on Elm Street or something, which is still like you know unsettling or whatever. But you know that like Freddy Krueger ain't showing up in your dreams. This this movie deals with like Danvers is a real place. Uh, the dissociative dissociative identity disorder is a real disorder. The Patricia Willow thing really happened. Like, real stuff has happened in real life to where it's like you can almost put yourself in the character's shoes and be like, yeah, I, that could be me if I worked on a crew like this. Like, shouldn't go downhill if I worked on a crew like this. Like, it's it's real, you know? And that's just so much more authentic of Dread than, like, the Splatter movies, which are still fun. I mean, but, like, this is an actually, like, unsettling, unnerving movie. Yeah, this one is not fun. Yeah, no. <laughs> No, it really isn't. I don't think I had fun watching it. I enjoyed it. But yeah, fun isn't the word I'd use. (laughs) 
that does tie into something. And I was going to save this for later in the movie, but just I want you guys to listen to this as we're going along. It's the really big discussion question. Is anything supernatural actually going on in this movie or is it all just in someone's head? And you can make the argument it's actually creepier if there's nothing supernatural because I will, again, spoil it a little bit, but I have heard this movie described as the most terrifying and realistic depiction of a mental breakdown anybody's ever seen on film. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt authentic. And I mean, you know, there really is two camps. It's like, do you think it's supernatural or do you think it's it's in his head and it's just psychological? You know, and it's interesting to see who falls on which side of the fence on that and it's like i you know not to give away my feelings on it but just in general i think it's scarier if it is a psychological thing and not something supernatural because it's like yeah this can happen to anybody like you could break mm-hmm. or snap or whatever you know so yeah I, I i'm much more in favor of that camp being the scarier part well what's funny is the movie is awesome either way it can work either way. Like I, I, I can find almost no fault in it. But again, we'll get to that later. Yeah. So, so the first night there is done. They've been cleaning, and uh, Mike is staying by himself to listen to the creepy Mary Hobbs tapes. Which again, never do that. And, and the last thing we see at the end of the first day is Gordon again, the guy with the wife and kid driving home. And he's kind of just looking at his house. You see him parked outside his house, and he's looking at it wistfully, and. As they're showing him looking at his house, they're playing the tape of Mary Hobbs murdering her family over Gordon looking at his family. And the movie's kind of implying Gordon may be killing his family at some point in this movie. Yeah, and it's like you really kind of catch that on the second viewing especially, but it's just it's no coincidence that they play that over because it takes something as mundane as a guy just driving up to his home and, and play something so horrific over it that you can't help but wonder, like, is this dude okay? Like, I mean, he's he's already under a lot of stress, you know? He's, I mean, he saw his wife the, the, the night before. Like, is everything cool? And it's just kind of, uh, it's, it's really the beginning. I wouldn't say the beginning, but it's it's it kind of starts with, like, the mental breakdown of it all. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're really trying not to give too many spoilers here. We'll we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> we're going to we're going to we're going to fail at that very soon though, I can tell. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, so day 2 in the asi- mental asylum. So, remember the first day Gordon was there, the main guy, he hears the voice, "Hello Gordon." And now the second day, Phil who is David Caruso. I kind of forgot about this, Sean. I forgot the scenes in the movie. Phil actually starts hearing the voice. You can hear me. But he's kind of interrupted and distracted and it goes away. Did you catch that? I kind of forgot about that. I actually completely forgot about that until I rewatched it recently because I thought it was just like Gordon hearing these voices or just these voices in general. But yeah, it was Phil that heard it. And that kind of just like, kind of just opened the door, you know, as far as just, just, I guess the explanation of it all, you know, but yeah, it was, I, I didn't even realize that that was a good catch, you know? Yeah. Okay. So again, the first stupid thing was Mike finding these tapes and Mike goes all by himself in the basement and listens to them at night. And now we have the second stupid guy, Hank, your favorite, who 
Hank is down in the morgue. Of course, you cannot have a scene in a creepy, abandoned mental institution without a scene in a morgue where he's digging through and finding all these remains of people like gold teeth and glass eyes. But he finds all these old coins that are probably worth money. And Hank is like, oh, my God, he starts digging all these coins out of the ashes of the morgue. And he decides basically he's going to come back later that night and steal all these coins. So we're now going to have two people wandering around in this place at night. Yeah, he finds the antique coins like a trail of breadcrumbs, and he just walks up to like the wall, which is on the other side of the morgue, and like pokes at a brick, and it just comes like just hundreds of antique coins come flying out of it like a slot machine, and this dude's like got like Scrooge McDuck like dollar signs in his eyes, you know? I mean, he's just like you just know this dude's gonna come back and put his life in danger for this. Like I already knew when that happened. I'm like, oh, this dude's coming back, and it's like, of course you're gonna come back at night. Like I mean. <laughs> Just put it in a bag and leave. Like, why you got to come back at night? I never understand why these people got to come back at night. It's like, of all places, Danvers State Hospital. Like, come on, man. (laughs) What I love about this movie is they're under such pressure to finish this job in a week, which is impossible. Yet this entire movie is everybody slacking and going off to do side projects. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They got their own kind of like gigs that they're doing at this abandoned hospital asylum you know and they just gotta they, they had to do the classic horror movie thing where they gotta go by themselves you know no backup or nothing i mean i guess hank didn't want to split split the money or the loot with anybody but it's like they just you know they work without masks which always crack me up you know if, if considering they're an asbestos crew but then they're gonna go do these side gigs half the time they're just chilling and it's like okay mike's gonna listen to tapes hank's gonna go and get rich like it's like okay i mean i don't think y'all gonna finish the job but okay no wonder gordon's under so much pressure his crew sucks <laughs> yeah i mean really like they're just taking breaks and doing whatever you know he's got his like little mullet head nephew that's like you know blasting music and riding a little asbestos lawnmower or whatever and like bumping into things it's like dude where'd you find these people <laughs> Not only that, but like you said, they're anti-maskers. Oh my God, in an asbestos factory. <laughs> yeah, I just that's the one thing that stuck out to me was that they even had like the beginning of not the beginning, but I think day one or even day two, they're like, oh yeah, you got to wear the mask, man. Even a little bit, you know, you'll be drowning in your own fluid once it takes effect. But like none of these dudes are actually wearing masks when they're in like the danger zone. So it's like, okay, well, practice what you preach, but okay. <laughs> Okay, so again, they're all split off doing their thing as they're supposed to be cleaning. Mike is still listening to these Mary Hobbs interview tapes, which are so creepy. And he's already on session five, where she's getting deeper and deeper into her voices and all these repressed, you know, identities. And again, we're halfway through the movie almost. It feels like nothing's happened, but we're it's moving along pretty good here. And now we get a scene where we get a lot of exposition, where they're all out eating lunch on the second day. And they're talking about murder and if murder is legal and they're talking about if the insanity defense ever works in court because one of the guys mike is a law student and this is where we get the demonstration of how a lobotomy works yeah this is where i wrote actually in my notes like up mike's starting to break he shows uh jeff exactly what a lobotomy is and explains it like in great detail like the parts of the brain that's getting like mushed up and everything and he like puts him in like a almost like a fake like a pseudo chokehold from behind and takes his little chopstick because they're eating chinese food and puts it like right up to his eye and is explaining exactly what a lobotomy is and this dude's kind of starting to 
just kind of starting to get a little nervous because you're like, all right, has this dude been listening to a little too much Mary Hobbs tapes? You know, <laughs> and like one of the, my, my favorite part of the whole Mike exposition about lobotomy is how he's like up oh, the only side effect is the black eye and the cure is glasses it's like well you know there's the whole getting stabbed in the brain thing it's like a side effect but i mean i get yeah i guess you got a black eye i guess i guess you could you could fix that too you know put on some shades <laughs> wow you are a lawyer looking for the technicalities Oh, yeah, yeah, the, that's the insanity defense, all that. Oh, yeah, I was eating it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay, the discussion here is barely, they talk about uh, the insanity defense, why people would be put into a sanitarium, and Mike, the legal student, says, and this is true, I know this from a lot of by true crime reading, the insanity defense rarely works in court because murder implies a motive, and so... By definition, if you had a motive, you were cognizant of your actions. So, and I know that's true, correct? The insanity defense rarely works in stuff like murder. Yeah, I mean, people will plead it, I guess, just because they have nothing to lose, but it gets sawed through immediately. And then even people who have, like, legitimate mental illnesses can't just plead the insanity defense just because you have a mental illness. Like, you have to be insane. You have to not know what the hell you're doing when you're doing it. So yeah, you're exactly right. You know, when it's like you can identify a motive that pretty much undoes the entire defense. Yeah. And again, this does tie into the plot later. Everything's a clue. Everything's a breadcrumb into where we're going to go later in the movie, including, I should add, if there's a scene where one character explains how to give a lobotomy to somebody, you'd be damn sure you're going to see a lobotomy later in the movie. So again, if you're squeamish about that stuff, get ready. You will see one. Actually, two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man i can't wait till we get to that part <laughs> okay so and here we go it just uh it's the second day and people notice that gordon the main guy is under a lot of stress he's not talking as much he's kind of gruff he's limping they're like what's wrong with gordon again is something wrong at home is he under a lot of pressure with his wife and kids and and the other guys are all standing around saying you can't stay in this job for too long because the pressure builds up. This is you can't work in these kind of conditions. It's claustrophobic. It's dangerous. You need an escape valve. You need to have a career path other than just a lifetime hazmat cleaner. And they all talk about what their escape's going to be, what their pressure valve is, how they let off steam. And again, Gordon doesn't have that, and it's going to have tragic consequences at the end of the movie. Really. Yeah, they all. I think it's Hank and Jeff, right? They're talking about having an exit plan, and Hank's got this big spiel about having to have an exit plan. And I think I think his is like gambling, and Mike's is law school. He mentions, but Gordon doesn't have it. I mean, it's Gordon's business. So like, if if he goes out of business, you know, you can't put food on the table for the wife and the daughter. So I mean, you could, in a way, I mean, really, you can empathize with Gordon early on with all that because it's like you know he probably sunk his whole like life into this business and this job is do or die so it's like these other guys i mean they're getting exit plans or they got they got plans for if he does go out of business but what the hell is gordon gonna do you know and they do say again i cannot overemphasize how much richer this movie is the second time around when you see the clues and i'm gonna start pointing them out we're gonna get a little more blatant with the spoilers is that they're talking about gordon the leader and they're like you know Gordon is the Zen master of calm. I've never seen him lose it. Be like him. He's the ideal. That's the thing. Follow this guy. He's stoic. He never breaks down. He's never in a bad mood. He never snaps. And this is a problem because we will find out Gordon is going under some, he's, he's under a tremendous amount of stress right now. And we're about to the point where I'm going to start spoiling this movie really hardcore just because I think it will enrich your experience. 
Gordon gets on the phone and he calls his wife and he's talking to her. He's like, uh, Wendy, are you there? Please, you know, please forgive me. I feel bad. I need to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, he's very desperate. There's something he has to talk to. He just has to talk about with Wendy and you don't know until the second viewing of the movie, why this scene is significant. Yeah. I mean, and then on the second viewing, you'll really like understand what exactly is going on. Cause the first time you're like, okay, Gordon made a huge mistake somehow that we don't know what you can kind of guess what it is. You can tie it back to when he came home with the roses and you heard that crazy noise, you know, when he, when he went home with his, to his wife and kid and he's making this phone call, you know, you're kind of like, okay, he must've made some kind of mistake. But the second time you watch it, you're like, okay, I, I know what happens. I know the significance of this scene and it all kind of tying together to the stress that he's under and everything that, you know, it, it all kind of just starts making sense. Okay. Should we finally do the big reveal here? What the significance of this is? Yeah, because it leads into the Hank at night scene, so I think that's I think you can absolutely reveal it. Okay, the significance of the scene, and this is why the second viewing is the one you really need to enrich yourself in this storyline, is we see repeatedly through this movie, Gordon is calling his wife and talking to her, and, you know, please, we need to talk about it, I feel bad, I need to apologize. He's not talking to anybody. His wife is dead. He snapped a couple nights ago. He had a fight, and because he's the type of guy who has no pressure valve, no safety valve, he, in a fit of rage, slapped his wife, slapped his daughter, ended up killing both of them. His wife and his daughter are both dead, and he's talking to nobody. He is completely broken with reality. He's having phone calls with nobody. Yeah, he is snapped. And, like, the scene the night before where he's, like, driving up and looking at his home all pensively, it makes sense because his dead wife and his dead baby and his dead dog, who, at the end, you hear him killing them. That's why I mentioned how this is a disturbing movie for several reasons. It's because you hear him killing each of them or you hear them screaming and then all of a sudden they're not screaming, you know, and it's just like, holy hell. Like, what the hell does this happen? So, you know, he's making these phone calls, and it's like, damn, I shouldn't have felt bad for this dude at all the first time I watched it, you know? I was like, what did he do? And now you know what he did. And it's like, it kind of goes right into his psyche that he really thinks he's making a phone call. He really thinks he's leaving a message. You know, he thinks that she's going to pick up. You know, it's just, it's not making sense to Gordon, just like it's not making sense to us when you watch it the first time. Yeah, and again, as I said at the beginning, this is a very realistic portrayal of a person having a nervous breakdown. And the actor, the Peter Mullen guy, he is so good in this movie. When you see it the second time and you realize he's nuts, every little thing that will happen from the rest of the movie is him being paranoid or seeing things. He's a... Uh, unreliable narrator. Well, you see it from his point of view, it makes sense, but it won't later. And it's really interesting to watch how they portray the story is Gordon just spiraling down into madness. And basically the question is, did this place make him go into madness? Is it something supernatural? Or was he just, did he just have that capability that every man has that they could just snap and kill anybody at any moment? And that's just how humans are. Yeah, and I fall into the the latter camp where I think that he just snapped, and I think that it's just one of those things where everything just piled up, and it just broke him, you know. And I mean, like like you said earlier, it's scary both ways. Whether it's a supernatural thing that kind of possessed him or took him over or caused him to do it, or just like a legitimate mental breakdown that can happen to anyone, 
you know, anyone who's weak or, or wounded or whatever, you know, it can just happen like that. So, yeah, I fall into that category. Okay, so we've dropped the secret, and now we will reveal the rest of the movie. Again, if you don't know that secret, that his wife is dead, you, you'll be kind of confused the first time you watch it. And that's why I spoil it, just because I really want you to appreciate this movie on first viewing. It's set up like a puzzle. Okay, so... So yeah, so we see there's a little subplot here where Gordon sees his buddy Phil out talking to two drug dealers outside, and he's like, why are you talking to those guys? Gordon's starting to get real paranoid that his crew is is doing things behind his back, and they're not you know, following safety instructions, because Gordon is just spiraling. He's out of control, and he's seeing enemies when there aren't enemies, and Phil, for his part, is just out there buying weed, because that's how he review, review, uh, releases his stress. He gets high. Again, that's why I think it's significant. The voice was talking to Phil earlier. You can hear me. And it goes away because Phil has an escape valve. He can get high and release the stress of this place. But Gordon doesn't have that. Can you imagine being Phil's pod dealer and he tells you to meet you at Danvers State <laughs> Hospital, like around like building three or something like, no, dude, you got to you got to meet me at like the Popeye's parking lot, dude. I'm not going to the freaking abandoned <laughs> mental asylum. But you, you, you nailed it there. Where it's like. Gordon sees Phil talking to these two guys and he's paranoid. And the first time you watch it, you're kind of like, well, who the hell are these two guys? You know, and you're kind of wondering, too, like, is some shady shit going on behind his back? Like, what's actually happening here? You know, but then the second time you're like, okay, now he's just buying a joint. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The movie will throw all sorts of red herrings into you into thinking all the crew is up to shadiness. But all that is is Gordon being nuts and paranoid, and basically he has snapped with reality because he's killed his wife and he doesn't know what to do. He can't admit it. He hasn't told anyone. Her dead body, the baby's body, are still back in his house. He doesn't know what to do. So it's just his whole world is imploding around him. And he's seeing enemies that aren't there. Oh yeah, and he keeps coming. And he's coming to work every day like it's just another day in the office and that kind of like speaks to his mental breakdown where it's not like he's just this this evil i mean i guess he is just this evil murderer but it's not like his motive was just to kill the wife and kid and act like everything's normal it's like he has no idea like what the hell he did until the ending until the big revelation at the end where it all starts to click you know, he's just coming into work and just acting like we got to get this done in a week. Like he's going to go home to his wife and kids and he calls his wife, you know, I mean, you nailed it when you said it's a picture perfect representation of a mental breakdown. That's exactly what what we're seeing. Yeah, I can't say enough about it. You have to watch this more than once to catch it. OK, so uh, so this is night two. And I believe this is the one where Hank. The uh, the shadiest member of the crew comes and wants to get all the coins from the morgue. He has decided to sneak back in at night. And this is where we're going to get our first death in the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His dumbass goes at night to go get the antique coins. And he's got a flashlight. And he finds the the teeth and eyeballs, the glass eyeballs and the lobotomy pick and the coins and he's just giggling just just can't believe what he found and this is his ticket like this is this goes to his exit plan where he's like this is this is how he's going to cash out and um an interesting thing that i didn't realize until the second viewing is that as he's coming down the hall he's hearing like these noises and stuff and he comes upon a jar of uh jeff peanut butter on the ground and if you watch closely um when gordon uh is going to meet his wife at the end of the first day he's got a jar of uh jiff peanut butter in his uh in the box that he's bringing in with the roses mm -hmm. so it's just kind of like 
you know, it just kind of like a lose to like, is this actually, is this Gordon that's doing it? You know, I didn't catch that until, until the second viewing, but you know, he's hearing these noises and it's like, Oh, it's just a pigeon. You know, he, he laughs like, oh, I don't know why I was afraid he was running at one point. And then all of a sudden it's the POV of uh, somebody coming around the corner and it just gets them, and it just goes to the next scene. You don't see what happens to them. Yeah, I would argue this is probably the scariest scene in the movie, just, you know, shot by shot. We have Hank in the morgue of the abandoned asylum at night. It's pitch dark down there, and all of a sudden he hears a noise, and he looks up, and there's a shadow behind him. Now, that's a creepy scene in any movie. I don't. Whoever said nothing happens in this movie, that is one creepy scene. Yeah, they just weren't and paying attention and it's like this is i think this might be one of the only scenes to happen at night and that's kind of what makes the movie even more unsettling is that the rest of the scary stuff happens during the day and so he's in this dark asylum at night and you're hearing noises and you see a shadow it's like how do you not run for your life like hank did i mean i, I those people must have just got bored 30 minutes in because nobody got murdered or something and checked out because i mean this this is really where like it turned the movie turns a corner and it starts going downhill for the crew really, really fast. Yeah. So Hank is cornered by somebody in the asylum and he's like, Hey, what are you doing here? And all of a sudden you hear uh, this really horrible noise. They use this noise in this movie very effectively. It's kind of a scream kind of metal being dragged across metal. And this, this, the scene just cuts off. So something happens to Hank, but you don't know what it was. Yeah, and the what are you doing here is, is, is something to remember because that ends up coming up later in a really brilliant way. It was probably one of, the, one of my favorite parts of the movie or the revelation of that. But yeah, and then the, yeah, the sound design that you just explained, that is really one of the highlights. I know I'd mentioned that before, but just it's like, I don't know how they make these sounds, but it's it fits perfectly in the setting. It, it just it fits perfectly in the mental asylum where it's like it doesn't sound human. It doesn't sound like something you would just hear in your everyday life, you know, but that's what makes it so unsettling because you're like, what the hell is that? That sounded so horrible. Okay, and I'm trying to fill in the gaps just so you can kind of see what happened. What has happened is that Gordon has killed his wife and baby. He has not accepted the reality that he has done this. And again, we kind of tie back to that earlier discussion. Can you kill somebody and be insane or does homicide imply motive? It's You could discuss that for hours if you want to. But Gordon has not really accepted that he has killed his wife and baby. So he's never gone back to his house. He's been sleeping here in the asylum at night. And somehow at some point in the night, he heard Hank, uh, you know, rustling around, grabbing the coins in his weird disassociated state uh, Gordon has wandered down and confronted Hank and Hank is like oh what are you doing here and something terrible has happened to Hank we will find out later but for now all we have to know is it's day three and they're all working and Hank is missing because he was assaulted last night by Gordon and everyone's pissed but Phil the co-owner of the company is now noticing that something's wrong with Gordon Gordon has suddenly become a liability because his head isn't quite in this job anymore something's off with him today yeah, and they kind of have this confrontation on the roof, which happens after Phil calls Amy, his ex-wife, to see where uh, Hank went. And apparently uh, Amy said that Hank uh, broke up with her and got he found his ticket, quote unquote, and he went to casino school, which I don't <laughs> know what that is. I don't know. I don't think, do they mean like the casino? I'm not sure. Like, 
there's a casino school in New Orleans that teaches you how to like deal blackjack, but I don't think that's what I don't think that's Hank's exit plan. I don't know. So like I think Gordon's paranoid about that too. He gets more paranoid later, but he doesn't believe that Phil even called Amy. Like he he's he's not he doesn't believe or trust anything about Phil. And he confronts him about the two guys that he saw. And Phil's kind of sidestepping it. And it gets pretty tense. Phil's like, you know, you're going to hit me. You know, hit me or whatever. I mean, it's the this is really when their relationship breaks down. And I know we'll get to it. I mean, it really it really peaks at, at <laughs> some point in, in the stairwell, in, in, I think, the next day. But, uh, but yeah, this is where their relationship breaks down. And Gordon is really starting to, to lose it. Yeah, and again... In the grander picture of things, all this is red herring. They're trying to make you think it's a movie about the team turning on each other, but that's not it. That's not it at all. But yeah, it's really cleverly clever how it's designed, like a little puzzle box. But okay, so so uh, yeah, this is where Phil has started to notice Gordon, our leader, is losing it. That baby somehow fucked him up. He's nuts. He's he's you know he's looks like he hasn't slept he's got bloodshot eyes he's distracted he's losing us jobs he's like screwing up these bids he's bidding a week when it should take us three and so again the team is just all falling apart and they're all noticing their leader gordon is not quite as stoic as he normally is and this will culminate in again if you know what's going on this is such a fantastic scene where gordon the leader walks down into the cemetery there's a cemetery behind the sanitarium and he's calling up his wife on the phone and they have a really long discussion about you know i apologize please you know i just i just want to come home i miss you i really again his wife is dead he's talking to nobody it's such a cool scene when you realize what's going on there yeah because he really 100 percent thinks that he's talking to wendy his wife and he wants to see misses his baby who he already killed and it's like he's just begging practically on his knees to just come back home and to reconcile and everything and he just can't can't seem to get through to her and you you know you, you watch it the first time and you're like well she's mad you know maybe she'll come around but the second time it's like yeah she's never going to come through you murdered your whole family i mean it's just insane and he's just i forget if this is the part where he was like by mary hobbs's grave or yeah something. this is a but, scene yeah 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 and it's just it all just kind of comes together that's where those parallel tracks with the sessions and mary hobbs and gordon's just descent into insanity they all just line up together and it's like yeah he's not talking to anybody yeah it's great he's role-playing the entire conversation of both sides and you don't realize that until you see it later and again he's sitting at mary hobbs's grave who's the woman on the tape she's number 444 although i read somewhere that's actually symbolic she is patient number 444 and the fourth day is where gordon finally snaps and it all comes down to a head <laughs> oh dang i didn't realize that that's nice but, yeah, her story lines up with Gordon's, and I've heard a lot of criticism saying, what's with Mary Hobbs' story? It has nothing to do with the plot of the movie. But it does. You just have to think about it for a little bit. Mary's story, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, is that she killed her parents in a fit of rage when she was 14 years old on Christmas, and she invented this fake personality in her head named Simon, and she blames it on Simon. And when you've done something that horrific, you can come up with this other personality to hide the truth. Oh, this person did it, not me, which is kind of the basis of disassociative you know, disorder. And that's exactly what happens to Gordon, that he kills his wife, he can't accept it, and we will find out later 
Simon is kind of the personality in his head that did it. It's the same type of thing. And again, we're going to get into the debate. Is it supernatural or not? But his story parallels hers perfectly. It has absolutely everything to do with her story. Yeah, it's almost identical in the sense that Gordon, uh, and I forgot to mention this, but he snapped when a pot of boiling water tipped over when he was, uh, I guess, hugging his wife and burned his leg. And then that's when he snapped. And with Mary Hobbs, her brother, like, pushed her over and she fell and broke her doll and, like, cut herself. And that's when she snapped. So it's like they both have this inciting incident where they both get hurt or wounded, you know, and they both just snap. So, yeah, I don't understand the the criticism about the Mary Hobbs thing beyond just, like, doing a great job of explaining what multiple personality disorder and dissociative uh, identity disorder is, but like there is a direct parallel to Gordon's story almost, almost identically. Yeah. And again, as I said earlier, a direct parallel to the shining as people have pointed out because his wife's name is Wendy and he has killed her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's a good catch. I really, I, I didn't even, I didn't even realize that. I mean, I just thought the shining overlook hotel, it ends right there. But yeah, unlike Jack, uh, Gordon's successful at killing this one day. And the and the child. Gordon's a winner. Yeah, he yeah, he gets he's he's got a hundred percent success rate at what he sets out to do, apparently. Safety first, that's his motto. Yeah, completely. <laughs> okay, well, well I want to point out one scene here. This has nothing to do with the storyline, it has nothing to do with the suspense, any reveals or anything. It's just my personally my favorite acted scene in this movie. It's such a masterpiece. It's right here at the cemetery. When Gordon's sitting there having a phone call with nobody, he's sitting there just talking and it's totally realistic. You think he's talking to his wife and then his nephew comes down, Jeff, and Jeff has, you know, thanks Uncle Gordon for this job. Uh, You know, I think it's going to work out. How's, how's Aunt Wendy? Is she fine? I haven't seen her in a while, blah, blah, blah. And the look on Gordon's face when he is talking to his nephew and basically trying to explain that, oh, yeah, my wife's fine. Oh, yeah, she's doing well, even though she's already dead and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And you can see the confusion on his face as he's breaking. That, to me, is the single best acted scene in this movie and one of the best I have ever seen in any horror movie ever. It's so fantastic. Oh, yeah. Peter Mullen was perfectly casted in this role. I mean, he makes Gordon seem so believable. And I mean, especially at the end when it's like a complete breakdown and his psyche has just snapped. But even like parts like this, that kind of just like foreshadows the complete breakdown that he's having or or exemplifies the breakdown that he's having. And I mean, it's just you're exactly right. I mean, he just he just completely nails it. And it's still it's like it's so well done, but it's also subtle to the viewer the first time you're watching it and to Jeff, I guess, who's talking to him, where, like, you can kind of see that something's off, but it's not like he's just, like, overacts and makes it seem like, like, oh, I'm snapping or I'm falling apart. Like, you can tell the wheels are turning in his head and he just, he doesn't have a full grasp. He's he's asleep in a sense, you know, and doesn't grasp it. And you can just read it on his face. Like, I mean... He, he was he was perfectly cast. He was great. I don't know if you've seen him in uh, in Ozark on uh, on Netflix. I didn't even realize that he was one of the characters in it. But that's how good of an actor he is. Is that he just immerses himself in the role and he just totally does it here too. I did not realize that was him. Oh wow, that guy's great. <laughs> yeah, I forget the dude Jacob Snell. Maybe you know one of the the couple with the older lady who's a complete nut. I forget. I don't want to give away any spoilers of Ozark, but I had no idea. 
that was him when I watched it until I looked at his credits, you know, after rewatching Session 9. And I was like, wait, that was him? Because he just plays like an old, uh, you know, Missouri good old boy American dude, and he just completely nails it. And he's kind of a nut in that one, too. But uh, <laughs> he's, he was just perfectly cast in both of those roles. Okay, so... <laughs> Here we go. It's going to get really complicated to explain the rest of this movie because a lot is going to happen all at once. And it's going to be multiple storylines, red herrings, everything. So basically, I will kind of give you the short version is that Gordon has killed his wife. He doesn't know what to do. All of a sudden, the other people are starting to notice that Gordon's acting weird. And Gordon, through his paranoia, is going to kill the rest of his crew because he doesn't want them to find out what he's done. But he's not quite there yet. He hasn't quite been pushed into that level of homicide and paranoia. Right now, he's still kind of struggling. And again, we go down to hear Mike still listening to these Mary Hobbs tapes in the basement. And they're getting closer and closer to session nine. And... I'm trying to, to think how I want to describe this. The therapist in the tapes keeps saying, there's one voice you're hiding from me, Mary. I know Simon had something to do with you killing your parents. And she's like, you don't want to talk to Simon. And she's going through all her voices. And he's like, the doctor's like, yes, I do. I want to hear Simon. Bring Simon out. Wake him up. And she's like, no, I can't. No. And Simon is the persona of evil within her and also the persona of evil within Gordon. And he's going to wake up in Mary in the tapes and in Gordon in real life at the exact same time. Yeah. And it's like, Mary knows that Simon is the persona personification of evil. And she, she knows that it's not good for Simon to come out to the surface because Simon's who came out on, on Christmas and killed her whole family, you know, and it just kind of builds, up like that but the doctors know that that's the key they got to figure out why like why did she do it you know why or why did simon do it you know like what happened like what pushed her to the edge like that so they got to talk to simon and yeah the, the simon that's inside of gordon too hasn't yet surfaced but with everything going on all the stress and phil's almost like leading a mutiny because he sees gordon cracking like it all just kind of bubbles to the surface at one time and it just kind of just goes nuts. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. The end of day three, the end of Wednesday. And this is the last sane moment in the movie for Gordon is he's really trying. He's has a scene with Phil at the end of the day, his old buddy, they run this uh, company together and Gordon just kind of says, you know, what's the stupidest thing you've ever done, Phil? And Gordon kind of wants to hint at what he did. He, he, again, he has killed his wife in a fit of anger. And he loved his wife. He loved his baby. He cannot understand why he did it. He knows he did it. He hasn't quite come to the acceptance of why, though. But he kind of admits it. He tells Phil, you know, the other day I hit Wendy. And Phil's like, what? You, you don't hit people. You have no temper. And Gordon's like almost scared. He's like, I we had a fight, you know, I wanted to celebrate and a pot of boiling water spilled on me and I snapped and I, I slapped her and it was an accident. And again, Gordon is, as we're meant to think, a nice guy. He's never done anything like this. He had no malintention. He just, in a fit of rage, hit his wife and he keeps explaining, you know, I've tried to apologize and call, but she won't listen, which it's not really a lie. That's just his interpretation of reality. But Phil is kind of shocked. Oh, my God, Gordon hit his wife? Yeah, I interpreted that as, like, you know, this is so out of character that nobody would suspect that he would do anything crazy like this. I mean, Phil has known him for forever. Jeff's his nephew, and he's the one that said he was his end master. And it's like I kind of interpreted 
Gordon's retelling of the story as him truly believing that he just hit Wendy and that's it. And he really thinks Wendy and Emma, the baby and the dog, everybody's alive. And that's why he's making these phone calls and stuff. And it's like his brain just short circuited because he did hit Wendy and then he murdered and then he killed her. I don't know if he stabbed her, strangled her. I mean, he just, he just savaged her, but his brain must've just short circuited because that is a big, one of the big things with dissociative identity disorder is short-term memory loss. And, um, and so I'm thinking like that's pretty much what happened was that his brain kind of like as a defense mechanism, like just short circuited the memory when he when he started killing uh, Wendy and uh, and Emma. And uh, and so he's telling Phil this and he really thinks that he just hit her and he just wants to, to fix things. And that's the worst thing he ever did. But little does Phil know and I mean, little does Gordon know even at this point that, no, that's that's just the tip of the iceberg, dude. Wow, I didn't even consider that, that he doesn't actually realize he killed Wendy yet. Yeah, I feel like, um, because I feel like his phone calls are genuine. I really feel like he is making these phone calls because he's like, oh my God, I snapped, I I hit Wendy, I can't believe it, I would never do that, you know, she's she's never going to let me see the kid again, she's going to divorce me, you know, and he's really having this, like, sentimental like understanding that he just did something horrible. And so he's making these phone calls and he's pouring his heart out to Phil where they've, you know, we already talked about how they had all this tension and this is their, like really their last moment of of sincerity between the two of them. But Gordon has the ability to be honest with Phil on this point and be like, Oh, I hit Wendy. I can't believe, you know, I can't believe I did that. It's the worst thing I've ever done, you know? And it's like, I don't think he's hiding a secret because you know, once it gets to the end and he, like, like, I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when Phil's like, you're asleep, wake up, wake up, you know, you know what scene I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's because Gordon's still asleep in his head and he hasn't woken up to the actual reality of what he did. And just like the same thing with the crew where he does all that, but then he doesn't realize he did it until long after the fact, you know, until somebody, Simon, Phil, whoever you want to say it is, wakes his ass up. You know, so I think this is I interpret this as Gordon genuinely thinks he just hit Wendy and he really wants to make it right. Okay, that's good. Although that does lead into the very next scene is this is where we get again one of the scarier scenes in the movie, a dream sequence where Gordon is sleeping in his van. He sleeps at the mental institution because he can't go back to his house. And on the night of night three, he's sleeping and he reenacts the incident with Wendy where he killed her. And this is where we get the symbolism with the white suit dressed in blood, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's covered in blood. And I think there's a quick flash to flowers on the ground and they're covered in blood, too. And I, I think the I don't think the scenes is the, the red is symbolic of blood i think it's supposed to be like paint or something Mm -hmm. because he's like or some kind of material like that but he just has this like absolute nightmare and he's hearing the voices at the same time too yeah yeah it's 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 rough yeah we have not heard the voice of the danvers institution in a while from since the beginning of the movie when it was like hello gordon and in this flashback where we see him leading up to uh, again where he eventually kills his wife and kid this is where the voice really comes back into the movie it's like hello gordon you know who i am and then you hear the incident the spoil the splash of water the boiling water on his leg you hear his wife scream and this is where you get the hint that something really bad happened where you hear the voice saying do it, Gordon. Do it. So again, Simon egging him on to finally cross that line into murder. Again, kind of like The Shining. 
Oh man, yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like you could tell Simon's getting more confident. It's like Simon has to push these people to the edge, and Simon—that's one of the key parts—is that Simon himself isn't doing the killing. Mary is the one that killed her family. Gordon is the one that killed everybody. Simon's just like the 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 devil inside of him that pushes him to the edge, and you know, to do it, Gordon. Oh man, that's that's it's such a such a good line reading right there because it's just so disturbing and the voice and everything and you can just tell like Gordon's just being completely pushed over the edge not just to the edge but over the edge yeah and again this does get back into the interpretation of this movie is this place haunted is this the shining the overlook hotel that's inherently evil and when people get in there it can get into your psyche and make you do crazy things or is it just that everybody has a Simon potential in them and Gordon cracked under the stress just like anybody could in real life and not even realize it. And again, we'll get to that at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get into to more of that, especially with my, my theory as to why it's just people cracking like that. But the, the institution definitely, definitely cracks everybody who basically walks into it. Or if you're a vulnerable person, this institution will make you go crazy and will make you crack, you know, ironically being an institution where people are supposed to get better. And no, it just pushes people over the edge. It's a house of healing, Sean. Yeah, exactly. You heal by murdering your entire family. That's what everybody does when they come here. You know, if you're an empath, do not go to the Danvers institution in Massachusetts. Yeah, that is the, that is the last place on earth you're going to want to be. If you're an empath, it's not going to go well. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Day four. And this is the day that will culminate in everybody being killed. Gordon's going to slaughter his entire crew. And it starts off in the morning. And again, this this part's so sad. And that's why I'm glad we kind of spoiled what's going on. Because the first time you watch it, you don't realize all this backstory of what's happening in the background is Phil goes to the sanitarium in the morning and Gordon's already there. And it feels like, how you doing, Gordon? And Gordon just says, God, this is the saddest line if you know what's coming. Well, if you know what's going on. Gordon just says, I want to go home. Oh, man. And he, and he really does. This is the thing. It's like he wants to go home. He that, It goes back to my, my earlier theory where it's like he really just thinks he just slapped Wendy and he can he can make it right. You know, he just wants to go home. But Wendy's not letting him go home. You know, she's not telling him he can go home. He just wants to go home. And you, the first time you watch it, you feel so bad for the guy because you're like, damn, you know, I'm not going to condone domestic violence at all but like you know i know you didn't mean to do it dude you just snapped you know i mean just you just you just hope he can find healing but then you know then you find out what what really happens but it, it doesn't change the fact that like <laughs> you just feel so bad for him in this moment i want to go home which means basically I, I i wish i didn't kill my wife and baby i want them back i'm like sorry you can't go home but yeah it's he he reads that line so pathetically Oh, man. Okay. So let's go to the last day here. So it starts off with, you know, Phil, Gordon's buddy, talking to the other guys like, you know, Gordon, he's starting to lose it. He hit his wife last night or and like Phil starts telling Gordon secrets and Gordon overhears him because the acoustics in this place and he knows they're talking about him. And Gordon is starting to get very concerned. People are going to realize his secret that he killed his wife. So, again, this will culminate later in everybody in here dying at Gordon's hand. They'll try to misdirect it, but that's what's going to happen. But first, we're going to run into Hank, who we thought was dead. Hank is going to make a reappearance. Oh, man, this scene was so good. Yeah, so uh, so Jeff goes to the stairwell, and he sees Hank looking out the window, 
and Hank's got these shades on, and he's just like, oh, man, you're in so much trouble, dude. Like, yeah, they're going to get your ass. Like, they've been looking everywhere. And Hank's like, what are you doing here? And uh, and so Jeff's like, hold on, let me uh, let me go get everybody and just, just stay right here. And he goes and, and goes to get everybody, and it feels so funny because Phil's like, uh, no, he's in Miami at casino school. Like, duh, like, what are you talking about? And then, But then they go and they go to the staircase, and, of course, Hank's gone. Okay, yeah. Okay, so there, again, the last 20 minutes of this movie, very chaotic, is one of the guys is saying, Hank, the guy who we thought fled, he's here, he's upstairs, he's got sunglasses on, and he's staring at a wall. He's, he's non-responsive, he's just saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And we will find out later, I'll kind of spoil this a little, that he has been given a lobotomy. At one point the other night, Gordon jammed an ice pick into his eye socket, wiggled it up and down, and when we find Hank later, he will still have the ice pick in his eye socket, which is a little disturbing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, man, I forgot to mention, too, the thing that kind of sets Jeff off is that Hank, like, touches the window, and he leaves blood on it because he's got blood all over his fingers. So you're like, oh, man, what happened to this dude? And then, yeah, you get a lot of close-up shots of an ice pick in Hank's eye, which is just insane. I mean, yeah, God, wait till we get to that scene. That's the most disturbing part of the whole movie. Okay, anything else is everything else is crazy, but that's the part where you're like, oh my God, like this dude's an asshole, but like, I don't think anybody deserves that fate. That is crazy. And to be fair, I know people are probably very squeamish towards eye violence, as I myself am. The ice pick is not through his eyeball. It's more through the socket. It doesn't actually go through his eyeball. So it's a little less nasty than you think it would be, but it's still disturbing. Yeah, I mean, and I, I realized that the upon the second viewing too, where I was like, oh wait, you can see his eye still moving, so it's kind of like closer to his nose a little bit. But then Gordon ends up pulling the ice pick out of his head, and and Hank's brain neurons are just misfiring, and he's like groaning and making the exact noises that I think somebody would make if an ice pick was getting pulled out of their head. I mean, they nailed that. I don't know what that sounds like, but that was terrifying. So, yeah, if you're squeamish, like, it doesn't get any better for you. I can tell you that. Plus the next lobotomy that happens, but we'll get there. Well, yeah, and that's the thing with a lobotomy. It doesn't kill you. It just severs your, what does it say? Severs your frontal cortex one side from the other. So it doesn't kill you, Hank. Is Again, okay, we'll get to that later. <laughs> All right, so... So basically at this point, Hank, the missing guy, is running around upstairs with an ice pick in his eyeball. And they all split up because in a good horror movie, everybody has to split up for the grand finale. And the, the Jeff, the young guy who's scared of the dark, has to go down into the dark, into the basement. He will have a great uh, payoff for his fear of the dark later. Mike, the guy who's listening to all the session, the, the Mary Hobbs session tapes, runs down to listen to the rest of the session tapes. And hey, guess what? He's on session nine, the final one. Uh, Phil and Gordon go upstairs to find Hank and everything's going to culminate all at once, man. Okay. How do you describe the ending of this movie? It's just, it's just like a bunch of puzzle pieces scattered on the ground, but then they all come together at the same time, basically where you just, you just, everybody goes in different directions. Everybody's kind of got their own thing, their own problems that are going on individually. But then Gordon's, for lack of a better term, his eyes get opened as to what exactly happened. You know, uh, uh, Phil is going through the tunnels, I think the same place where Hank originally got caught at night and he sees Hank just kind of like rocking back and forth and his tighty whities just 
shirtless, sweating, still saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And Gordon is going around. I think he's in, like, Mary Hobbs' room or something. He's he's upstairs in, like, the the that wing. I forget what it's called. But it just starts coming together. The power goes out. Mike's listening to the tapes, but the power goes out. And then Jeff, who's got, like, a phobia. I forget what the phobia is called, but, like, he is. Nyctophobia. Yeah, yeah. Scared of the dark. A phobia of, of fear of the dark. And he's running down this tunnel and there's lights uh, there's a bunch of lights in the tunnel and each one is flicking around and he's trying to outrun it and he doesn't get there and then mike turns the uh power back on and the tapes start getting on again and that's when simon presents itself and that's when <laughs> the complete revelation everything comes together and the entire movie is explained it's crazy yeah <laughs> okay here we go the fi- final scene basically the power has gone out. The generator ran out of gas. One guy, Mike, has to go out and reset it. Just a horrifying moment when everybody's trapped in the dark in this asylum. And as the power goes back on, he flips it back on, the generator back on. We see Gordon up in – all right, so i got to be very careful how I explain this. Mary Hobbs, the patient on the tape, had a room in the hospital. And in her room, there was a bunch of pictures. They used to do a thing called picture therapy, where you put pictures of things that were important to you on the wall. And she had lots of dead-looking babies and doll heads, and they were still there 20 years later. It was a creepy room. We go back now. Gordon is up in her room, and he has pasted pictures of his wife and daughter all along the wall, basically to remind himself of the people he's already killed. It's a really creepy scene when you know what's happening. Oh, yeah, and it's stuff like the daughter's christening, and, and Phil is apparently the godfather, it looks like. Mm-hmm. He's in the photos, too, I think. I mean, I'm sure Jeff and Mike were probably in the photos as well. But, like, yeah, he posts his own photos on there, and you're right. They have, like, the picture therapy so it's like, is this Gordon's picture therapy? Like, when did he do this? Like, he brought the photos from home or something? But he obviously did. And, like, he set up – it's Ward A on the third floor, which is where the that one lone wheelchair from the beginning is, or at least it's around that area. So it all kind of comes together where it's like he – Gordon essentially becomes a patient of Danvers, like, during that week. Yes, and, of course – simultaneously we hear session nine on the tape the title of the movie and this is where it all comes together when we hear the moment where mary again in her multiple personalities is talking to her doctor now simon finally comes out and boy this is a great reveal because we finally hear his side and he's like hello doc i'm simon you know who i am and the doctor's like Mary, okay, Simon, what happened the night that Mary killed her parents? And Simon's like, use your imagination. I just showed up and I introduced myself. I often help people in times of need. I am inside everybody. I am there when they need me. And it's really creepy. Oh, man, it is it's so brutal. Like, I don't see how you can watch that scene and not be unsettled just the way he describes it. And the way he describes the the incident with Mary Hobbs, how how I mentioned how she Peter scared her and she fell on the doll and got cut up. And then the the thing that I, I caught the second time was that it's not Simon who comes out. Simon told Mary to cut up Peter <laughs> real bad. He says with his brand new knife, which I I guess that's part of the broken doll or something. I don't know. And then he tells Mary to cut up her mom and dad too. So it's like Simon's the voice in Mary's head. 
and uh, probably Gordon's head too, that's telling them, do it, Gordon, do it, Mary. And then they do it, and then they murder their whole family. And he's telling the doctor that, and he's all proud. Like, he's he succeeded. Like, this was his, this was always Simon's goal, his motive, the murderer's motive right there. I mean, he, he succeeded. He pushed him over the edge. That's all he does. All he does is help people commit murder and violence. He's the... It's not quite the id. I'm not entirely sure what the 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 thing that allows you to cross over the line of uh, ethical behavior. He's he's the thing that can push you over. And he's got a great line here. He first he describes graphically how Mary stabbed her parents. And he's very gleeful about it. And the doctor's like, "Why did you do it, Simon?" And I love this line because Mary let me, Doc. They always do. They always do. Oh, that was so good. That was so great. And it's like, that's just, I just love that aspect of it where it's like, it's not just some like maleficent, like evil being coming in and doing the work for him. It's because they let him do it. They let him push them over the edge. Like, it's, and they all do. That's what he's saying. Like, they're all weak or wounded or whatever and they just let them do it it's so crazy yeah and again that's why i say this is a psychological horror movie this is hardcore because the implications when you think about this movie that basically that there's an evil spirit inside everybody that anybody could commit murder at any time and that's the implication it's not the evil spirit that makes you do it you want to do it the evil spirit is just an excuse you make up to let you do it and that's terrifying if you think about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the scariest part, the implication from all this, because it's true. I mean, literally, any of us could become murderers at any time. It's just the ability to stop yourself, the discipline, whatever you want to call it, inhibition. The sanity is probably the way I would call it, to stop yourself from committing such a heinous act. Like, everybody is literally physically capable of doing something as heinous as that but simon comes in when the person is just broken or is on the verge of breaking and simon comes in and says do it and pushes them over the edge and that's their justification you know as to why they did it they didn't want to do it but simon told them to do it but the reality is is that you know they did it it doesn't matter whether simon told them to do it because they didn't have to do it but they still did it and like simon says they always do they wanted to do it they wanted to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's like deep down, you know, as far as Mary, I mean, I forget how old Mary was at this time. Mary was a little girl. She was she 14. And everything. She was yeah, 14. 14. Yeah, she, she wanted to do it, you know, and, and Gordon, he wanted to do it. And you can see Gordon's under this absolute immense wave of stress that just overtook him with the family and the job and everything. And he just snaps. And that the, the crazy thing is, well, not really the crazy, but the scary thing is, is that that happens in real life. People snap. People snap and kill their whole families. That that happens probably every week in in the world, every week in the country. You know, people people do that. So that's what makes this movie so unsettling, is that it can happen and it has happened. So something like Gordon snapping and killing his family, killing the crew, Mary snapping and killing the whole family. That's not out of the realm of possibility that that can happen tomorrow to somebody you know, you know? That's what's so scary about it. I'm really going to unnerve people, and I'm really debating if I want to get into this on the podcast. But you know what? It's Horror Month, and I want to explain why this movie is scarier than almost every other horror movie out there. Is Okay, so we're recording this in the middle of the pandemic, 2020, the coronavirus. 
And one of the things that I do online is I follow a lot of true crime groups. I just, um, I've been always been fascinated by true crime. Do you know how many stories there have been in dudes just basically offing their whole family the last couple months? The total increase because of all the stress of the pandemic? Oh, really? It's crazy how much it's happening right now. A guy just snaps from the pressure, shoots his wife, shoots his kid, shoots himself. It's like the second pandemic going on right now because the world is under so much pressure and it ties into this movie perfectly that everybody has that capability and the only thing stopping you is because you haven't had Simon push you over the edge yet. Oh man, you know, I I did read an article about how like depression is absolutely spiking in the past seven months and, um, and other mental health illnesses are spiking and more diagnoses and everything. But I never thought of it as far as like the, the violent, like i guess dark aspect of it the morbid aspect of it that you know some people get depressed and they lay in bed some people just snap and kill their whole family like that's it that happens and during the pandemic you know people are losing their jobs i mean unemployment is as high as as it is and that's a lot of people i I like a lot of true crime too and i've noticed that a lot of the people who snap and kill their families like they're about to go bankrupt or they owe a lot of money so they're like we're just going to kill everybody and just end it all and it's just like holy shit I can't believe like people would do that, but people can do that. And it's just so crazy. And the people are always like their neighbors or families. Like I would have never guessed that Bob would have killed his whole family or would have done that. I can't believe it. Bob was such a nice guy. And that makes it even scarier because just like Gordon, he's a Zen master. He never snaps. It's the people you don't suspect that have this like bottled up rage inside of them that all it takes is something like a pandemic and now you're you're about to lose your house and you can't everybody's mad at you, everybody's upset or sad or stressed and you just can't take it anymore. You know, Gordon he was financially stressed, among among other things, you know, and he snapped. So oh man, that's that's so creepy. That's why as what I said earlier, truth is stranger than fiction, I'm telling you, it really is. Yeah, again, this is real horror. This is not fun movie horror. This is legitimately one of the creepiest movies I have ever seen. And again, it's not fun. But man, it is hardcore. I continue to use that phrase, even though it's not a word I think most people would use. This is a movie I always think of. And the more you read about real life crime and how close a lot of people are teetering to that edge of losing it on a daily basis, it's terrifying. Again, I cannot say enough about this movie. There are not very many movies like this. Oh, yeah, that's why I really like this movie, because, I mean, not only does it capture to like what a mental breakdown looks like but because it can hit close to home and that can happen to your neighbor that can happen to your your aunt or uncle or it could happen to you and that's where it's like that's why it's so unsettling is that this this is obviously you know a, a hollywood movie or whatever but it, it could it might as well just be a documentary mm-hmm. you know because this stuff happens we all have a simon inside us like it or not uh the scariest part right there and it's just like you just hope you never get to the point where you're too weak or, or wounded or whatever, and you just snap. You hope that you're able to, you hope that the good inside of you can overwhelm the Simon inside of you. But history and reality has shown that not everybody can do that, that they fault it. I'm glad we've successfully creeped and bummed everybody out for horror months. So good job, Sean. We've done it. <laughs> yeah, we did. We went deep right there. But I mean, I'm telling you, I meant every word. That is true. That's why it's like if you haven't seen this movie, and October, Halloween, that's the best time of the year, the most wonderful time of the year for me because I love horror movies. I love spooky stuff and Halloween and everything. It's like if you haven't seen this movie, 
you know, and you want to actually just be creeped out. This is the one that you gotta see. You know, you gotta understand that this is gonna make you feel, you know, a little a little unsettled, a little unnerved. Just turn the lights off and just sit on the couch and hope for the best. <laughs> and it's great because it's like two horror movies in one. The most depressing storyline ever that tells us way too much about human psychology we probably don't want to know. Also, it's set in the creepiest setting ever. So you get to like a double whammy, more money for your more bang for your buck. Oh yeah, it's it's perfect. And I mean, I think almost the besides the scenes where Gordon pulls up to his home, I mean, isn't like I think the whole movie is set at the at the mental asylum, and that just makes it so much so much more like you're trapped and you can't get out of there. And then you got the psychological aspect of it. Oh yeah, it's layered. It's layered for sure. Okay, so we basically explained the whole movie, but we're not actually to the end of the movie yet. Basically, in all the chaos, we hear the end of session nine, Simon comes out, Gordon will end up slaughtering everybody. We don't see it. It's kind of portrayed as a mystery. They kind of try to red herring you to make it look like Phil did it instead. Phil has nothing to do with it. But Gordon slaughters everybody. It's all over. And then the next morning, (laughs) Gordon, again, he's just nuts. He's fucking nuts. He's done. He wakes up the next morning in his van and he hears Phil, his buddy on the walkie talkie. And Phil's like... Come inside, Gordon. Come in the asylum. We found the culprit who killed everyone. And again, Phil's already dead. Gordon's just hearing conversations now. And he's going to wander in. He's going to have a conversation with Phil. Phil does not exist. It's all in Gordon's head. And this is where Gordon will finally realize that he has killed his wife and kid. He's killed his entire crew. His entire world is shattered because Phil... The ghost of Phil will be like, wake up, Gordon. I want you to wake up. You need to wake up and see what you did. Oh, yeah, that's when he because because Gordon finds Hank on the ground, kind of wrapped up in a sheet, still alive. And this is the first time I mean, the first time that in the movie he has seen Hank, you know, and so he's mortified. And he's like, Phil, you did this. What did you do? And Phil's like, oh, he was a liability. He had to come in. But then Phil's like, wake up and take a really, really good look at him. And that's when he takes Hank's glasses off and sees the ice pick through his skull and then the flashbacks start coming, and he starts realizing what he did. And then, yeah, everybody gets slaughtered. And you know, like you, I mean, you see him coming at the people, and then it'll cut to their body, and it's just mutilated. You know, it's just just sitting in pools of blood. It's a real quick flash. You don't really focus on it. You know, but he just goes and kills kills everyone, and it's just ugh. It's just brutal. And every murder, of course, is accompanied by the sound of Simon in his head saying, Do it, Gordon. Do it, Gordon. Oh, man. Even the new guy, the the guy that was going to replace Hank, comes in. And this poor guy has no clue what's going on. He just, like, comes up and he just sees Gordon standing over uh, Hank. And he's like, oh, what's going on here? And then that's when Gordon just wraps him up, gets him from behind, and just like Mike got with Jeff when he was showing him the lobotomy, and that's when he pulls the lobotomy pick kind of slowly out of Hank's head, and Hank's just moaning and groaning, and he he sticks the lobotomy pick in the new guy's eye while he's just screaming, and it's just, ugh. It's like the one one scene of violence on screen that you actually see and it is just brutal. So brutal. The second lobotomy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the second. Yeah, exactly. There's two of them. He goes from one lobotomy to the next. He pulls the same pick out and uses it on the new guy. I'm like, oh, my God. It's horrific. 
And to be fair, in defense of Gordon, he does not technically kill Hank or the new guy because the lobotomy does not kill them. So we have to subtract two murders from his total. Yeah, which, I mean, is that a fate worse than death at that point, that they just get lobotomized and left in the asylum? Like, I'd rather I'd rather be like Jeff or Phil or Mike, just cut my throat. Like, just lobotomize them and keep them in there. It's like, oh my gosh, just euthanize them at that point. Yeah, so what's what's worse, lobotomized or, or dead? This is a question that historians will puzzle over. For centuries, yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the lobotomized people seem like they're just chilling, but you know, I, I don't. I think I'd rather just just end it at that point because it's just just be 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 done with it. Just take me to the next plane, or just erase me from the world and let me fade the black dude. Don't leave me just walking around this abandoned mental asylum with a pick in my my skull. <laughs> now, for some, the glass is half full. Clearly, for you, the glass is half empty. Yeah, when it comes to getting stabbed in the head, the glass will always be half empty, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> <laughs> the frontal cortex is half empty. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So here we go to the end of the movie. Gordon has killed everybody. He has finally revealed what's happened, and we finally see the full flashback of him killing his wife and daughter. And again, it's not graphic, but boy, you hear it. Is uh, He goes up to hug his wife. She accidentally spills boiling water on his leg. He screams. He hits her, and again, you just hear it. It's all audio at this point. You hear her screaming, saying no, and then the voice of Simon says, do it, Gordon, and then the wife is quiet, and then you hear a little newborn baby. This is horrible when you think about it. Screaming, and then the voice says, do it, Gordon, and then the baby's quiet, and then the dog is barking, and all of a sudden the dog is quiet. So I forgot that he actually kills the dog, too. He kills three, not people, three deaths, all caused by Gordon just snapping at home. And the whole movie was him trying to deny the ramifications that he did that. But you hear Simon egging him on the whole time it happened. Oh, man, I don't think there's a worse trio of people or animals you can kill than the family dog, the wife, and a newborn baby that he's, like, all, all, all happy about at the beginning of the movie. And you hear it. You hear the baby. Baby's like life leaving her soul, life leaving her body, her soul leaving at that point because she's crying and then it's just, it's just silent, you know, and Simon got his way and that's it. And you hear, I remember the first time I, I saw this movie, I was like, oh, they're not actually, they're just going to allude to it. You're going to hear Wendy die and you'll, you'll just assume that he killed Emma and the dog, which is still horrifying. They could have done that and it'd still be scary, but they actually like let you in on a little secret and let you hear it, you know, let you be a fly on the wall. And, oh man, oh man, I don't, I don't know of a, of a, a better way to just freak your viewers out than do what they did there. I and mean, that was brilliant. That's the whole point of the movie. That was just brilliant. Yeah. All the evil in this movie is implied. You have to think about it later or you hear it. And it's really, again, like I said at the start, this is a nasty little movie. This one's just flat out evil. And again, you hear him kill his family. And then he says, no, and the next scene is him in the car. And this is where, again, it reveals everything we've already spoiled for you. Gordon's talking to Wendy on the phone. Wendy, I'm so sorry. I miss you. I just, I just want to come home. And he's like, I'm so lonely here. I want to come home. I want to hold my baby. Can you forgive me? And Gordon's crying. And you get the reveal is it cuts to his phone, which is shattered. There's no battery in it. It's all broken. So, again, it reveals what you, we've told you in the movie. He's been talking to a dead wife the entire time. His phone doesn't even work. And this is Gordon's hell he is now trapped in that he now realizes he's killed everybody that's close to him, that means anything to him, and he's probably going to jail or he's going to kill himself. And really, that's the end of the movie. It ends right there. 
Oh yeah, there's no happy ending. There's really no happiness at all that comes from this movie, which is just like like you said, it's just a, it's just evil every every bit about it. But that's what horror movies are supposed to be about. You know, they're not supposed to have a happy ending, especially when reality where situations like this happen where it's not a happy ending. You know, the 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 person might snap and do it, and then they come to and like deep down, you know, in in their core, their person, they probably don't. I'm sure Gordon didn't want to kill his wife and kid. But he did. He did. You know, Simon pushed him to the end, and he did. And that's it. That's the movie. It, you don't know what his fate is going to be. It just ends with the uh, with the end of the session nine tape, where the doctor is talking to Simon, and Simon says that he prays on the weak and the wounded, and that just nails it because Gordon was. I mean, you could argue that he was weak, but he was definitely wounded when the water the boiling water burned him you know and that was that was simon's moment do it gordon and that's it and that was just a perfect way perfect way to cap off the movie was the i pray on the weak and the wounded that was so good yeah let me do the voice just because this is literally how the movie ends we hear the end of the session nine tape where the doctor says and where do you live where do you live simon and simon says i live in the weak and the wounded doc Oh, man. It's just, even hearing you say it kind of like makes me, it brings me back to just the actual movie. And the first time I heard that, where I was like, oh my God, dude, this this is this is something else. <laughs> he just nailed it. And it's like, how you, you can't end a movie better than that as far as just disturbing the viewers. I mean, that's just it. Because Simon gets away with it. I mean, what are you going to do? Put Simon in jail? Simon's inside of these people. You know, Simon's always going to get away with it. Like he said, he always gets his way. And that's what he does. He lives in the weak and the wounded. And that's who Marion Gordon was to a T. And then I, I, I watch this movie and every single time I watch it, I like it more. I think it's even more of a masterpiece. It's like the skeleton key. That's another movie. I'm like, I get to the end. I'm like, that was such a masterpiece. And then I go on Rotten Tomatoes or Wikipedia and I read about Session 9 and do you know this movie only has a 61% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I just saw that today, actually, just kind of in preparation for uh, for this episode, where I was like looking up the ranked the best horror movies of the 2000s, the top 80, and this was number 67. And some of the movies that were above it, I was like, are you out of your mind? Like, you're telling me Snakes on a Plane is a better horror movie than <laughs> Session 9? I'm not even kidding. That was like 20 spots higher than it. I'm like, you you got to be crazy. And I saw the percentage, and it's like, dude, what am I miss? What are y'all missing? Am I missing something? Are y'all missing something? I feel like Gordon here going crazy. And, you know, the criticism, I mean, like, the criticism just don't make sense to me, where some of the critics are like, oh, I don't like the ambiguity of the ending. You know, they, they just kind of ended it. There's no finality. And I'm like, that's what makes it brilliant, is you get to interpret it in your own way, and you might be right. Who knows? But you can interpret it in your own way. And it's like, I just think some people want like a little bit of joy, a little bit of happiness, you know, in the ending or it, just in the movie in general. And Session 9 gave you none of that. <laughs> I mean, none of it. I can't believe it. It's 61%. That's crazy. Yeah, there is no steam valve to let off the pressure in this movie. And there's no easy answers. And I guess this is where we get into the interpretation. And again, going into this podcast, I thought this would be the most interesting part. Although... Now that we talked about evil and the inherent nature of evil and that lives inside of us, I'm already think we've done pretty well. But okay, let's talk about the interpretations here. There are, as far as I can tell, two ways to interpret this story. What would they be? 
there's either a uh, malevolent being Simon is the malevolent being that like lives in Danvers and kind of preys on the people, the weak and the wounded. That's who he lives in, you know. And Simon is basically this one entity, the singular entity that was in Mary, that was in Gordon, and then the, it's the evil that basically they had no control over it once this evil uh, being entity got inside of you. And that's what kind of pushed them over. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation, which is my, the one that I subscribe to is that Simon is just a representation of the evil that the potential of evil that could be inside of a person that when a person snaps or breaks, it's the Simon that comes out of that person and pushes them over the edge. And it's kind of like what Simon was saying, that Simon told Mary to do this and told Gordon, and that's why they do it, do it. All that kind of stuff where it's like, in the first interpretation, Simon would be the one that basically took these people over and did it himself. But the second interpretation is Simon's just that part that's inside of you, of your psyche that just breaks and your inhibitions that prevent you from doing heinous acts, the intrusive thoughts that everybody gets, you know, the intrusive thoughts like, oh, what would happen if I just jumped off this building? Like Peter did in the, Peter Mullen did in the behind the scenes, you know, Simon's the person who would actually get you to, to actually jump off the building, except instead it's actually murder your whole family. So, you know, that's the two interpretations. And I like the second interpretation because that's scarier to me in the sense that that could happen to anybody like we like we already mentioned you know the first interpretation the malevolent being kind of requires you to believe in the supernatural the paranormal even like if you want to give it like a religious connotation to the devil or something and i don't really subscribe to any of that so that's still scary to me though i mean if that is what the the writers and the director's intent was i mean it doesn't make the movie any less scary but it's just scarier to me that the second interpretation is that it can happen to anybody and it like you just mentioned with the true crime stuff with the the coronavirus and people snapping more is that it has happened and that's why it's like simon simon is in all of us and it's up to us to not let simon come to the surface and push us over the edge well yeah i mean just think about that if you're next time you're sitting with a husband wife spouse boyfriend girlfriend watching a movie just look over at them and and ask yourself, what's preventing them from killing me tonight? Because it wouldn't be that hard for them to do. Why don't they? And that's, that's I mean, yeah, that those are the two interpretations. And just to follow up on the first one, I've seen a lot of people on the Internet Movie Database comments and other message boards say, oh, it's obvious that there's an evil spirit in this movie, that Mary had some evil spirit in her. She came to Danvers, and it was let out into the building. So the building becomes the evil spirit, and when people come in there, if they're weak or they allow it to come in them, then it will enter them. That's why it enters Gordon, because Gordon's under all this pressure, and it tries to enter Phil. That's the one scene I kind of forgot, but he was able to push it off because he gets high. He can release his mind. So that's one interpretation, and that's where it kind of gets into the shining aspect. Is the hotel haunted? Was Jack just nuts? It's really the same thing with this. I have always believed there's nothing supernatural in this, but I've seen a lot of people argue it's obvious that it is. 
But again, I can't tell you one way or another. I know from watching the DVD extra features and reading some interviews, there were a lot of cut scenes in the movie that they really kind of butchered it to get it down to this movie. And it might have gone more in one direction either way. I think someone said, oh, if you watch the extended scenes, it's way more obvious what the director meant. But the way it ends up now in its final product, it's very ambiguous. Yeah, I like the ambiguity. And I mean, my counter argument to the it being an evil that oh, you go into Danvers and this evil being possesses you is that Mary killed her family before ever going to Danvers, mm-hmm. is how I understood it, was that Simon pushed her, she killed her whole family, and then she got committed. So it's like Danvers, I take Danvers as Danvers is it kind of, it brings Simon to the surface. You know, is, is kind of what you were saying too. How like Phil heard it, but he was able to kind of quiet it down. Mary was doing that with Billy and the princess, but ultimately the doctors had to get Simon out of her. I mean, but she was capable of getting Simon out of her. And Gordon had no release valve, had no exit plan essentially, and Simon was just able to come to the surface. So it's like, you know, it, it could be the supernatural, but I I think we're on the same page with that. Where it's like, you know, it's just. Is if I like to subscribe to the Occam's razor theories where the less assumptions, you know, the better, where it's like, you know, I don't have to assume that there is such a thing as evil entities in the world to explain this ending, that it could be explained just purely by the human psyche with ample examples of this happening in real life, you know? No, I, I'm 100% with you. I have never for one minute thought that there's anything supernatural in this movie, but the evidence is there if you choose to believe it. And to rebut what you said, to play devil's ad, or to play Simon advocate, I guess. <laughs> when right. the, the, the argument would be the spirit is in Mary. It's not in Danvers. But when the psychologist drags it out of her, then it, it's free from her into this building. And the building is so malevolent to begin with, it can, it can be haunted just like a person was. So that would be the argument that it started with Mary. Yeah, she killed her family because of Simon. And then when the dro- doctor drew it out of her, it then became part of the building. That's good. That's actually really good. That actually is a perfect rebuttal to to, to what I said because it's, that would explain everything as far as like how uh, Gordon and Phil were hearing the voices too, and or how Mary got it is that she was the vessel for Simon to ultimately make his home at Danvers. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I could see that. But that's what that's that's why I just don't understand the critics because it's like that ambiguity is a good thing because it leads you to these theories and stuff. And you can, you know, you, you can make rebuttals like that. And I could be like, yeah, actually, that does make sense. It could still be a supernatural. You know, I don't believe in it, but it could. You know, the evidence is there, like you said. I mean, I really think they just stuck the landing. I think they did it perfectly. Yeah, I hate that rebuttal because it, it, it disputes my argument because I don't think it's true, but it's a good argument. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, that's how it is as a lawyer, trust me. How it's like, man, I really wish you didn't say that because it really sinks my ship. But you're right, but now I got to... <laughs> kind of defend my own argument so yeah i I agree i agree (laughs) and with that we have successfully walked one through one of the creepiest movies i can think of one of the most evil movies and without question one of the most underrated movies i have ever seen in my life and I was just telling some of my friends, you know, I'm doing eight movies for Horror Month this year, and I'm like, I want to end the mo- the month on October 31st with the scariest, with the best. I have no doubt, Sean, this is going to be my October 31st episode. This is the best of the eight movies I'm doing. That's so awesome, dude. I mean, I really can't, I can't 
dispute that like and without even knowing what the other movies that you're doing it's like this is well worthy of the number one on that spot i mean especially since like the podcast is themed around movies that people need to hear more of or learn about you know and this is a perfect example of that i think like the movie opened in like 30 theaters i didn't even hear about it until years after i know you said you didn't either you know until you see a list and it's like this movie needs some love man and it is a, it has a cult following so it, it's starting to get there but like as far as like the the Halloween theme of just scary movies and everything, this is this is a perfect this is a perfect Halloween episode right here. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, this is a thinker movie, and I will say this is a movie that scares people who do not get scared easily. That's that's the best way I could describe it. It's a different level of horror movie. And again, it's not going to be for everybody, but if you eat movies like this up, this one is like candy. It's like crack. It's so much more interesting than most horror movies yeah it really is like like cracking away because like i like to think that i'm a big horror fan i always have been my whole life so i've seen hundreds of horror movies probably in my time so you know not trying to be like all tough but it's like it, it takes a lot for a movie to scare me or make me feel uncomfortable and like looking over my shoulder kind of in a way and this one does it this one completely makes me feel like I have witnessed something I'm not supposed to see or something, you know, with the mental breakdown and like connecting it to reality. And like, it, like you think about it, you know, after you watch it, you'll, you'll wake up the next morning and, and kind of think of the ending and think of reality, or you'll hear a news story about a guy that murdered his whole family. And you're like, Oh, it's just like session nine, you know, it's just, yeah, this is, this is one of those that, I mean, if if you just don't turn it off in the first 30 minutes, I guess like some, some people did or critics did, you know, I think you'd really appreciate it. Do it, Sean, do it. <laughs> it's still scary. Dude. Wait, did you hear something? I, what was that? Oh, uh, no, nothing. No, I, I didn't hear anything at all, man. It must've been the wind. <laughs> okay. We better wrap this one up. I don't want to creep people out too much. This is a creepy episode. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's, that's, Look, I'm happy to have creep people out if that's the if that's the end result because this movie does exactly that. So I'm happy to to share the creep factor with everybody else. Well, once again, I'm glad you found me on Twitter because I thought you were a great guest, and I I really would like to bring you back for another movie. Do you do you have other favorites that like movies you love that nobody else really loves as much? Oh man, I'm gonna have to think about think about that one. Well, thank you for for the compliment. I, anytime you want me back, man, I had a lot of fun recording this, and it's it's fun to kind of watch movies and dig into it, and take notes, and prepare for something like this, and talk to somebody about a movie who you know there's not a whole lot of people I can talk to about this movie. Yeah, there's definitely some. I'm gonna have to get you a list or something and find some underrated or unheralded spooky horror movies from all the decades and, and send it to you. It's hard to think of some off the top of my head because a lot of the ones like the witch was a good one recently that I saw, I was on a, a road trip in, uh, in Lafayette for work. And I saw that in theaters at like 10 o'clock at night, only person in theaters. And then I left theaters like as unnerved as I did with session nine, which I mean, I wish I saw session nine in theaters, man. I can't even imagine <laughs> how that must've felt, but yeah, man, I, I appreciate that. I would love to come back. This has been a lot of fun. You know, I really appreciate the opportunity and yeah, anytime you got a scary movie you want to talk about, there's a pretty good chance that I've seen it, and I'd love to talk about it. 
All right. And uh, once again, thank you for listening to everybody. This has been Horror Month. This is my final episode. I will be back to doing fart comedies after this. Thank you for listening. And uh, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love. And I'll try to find somebody interesting who is willing to go into an abandoned insane asylum and talk about them with me. I'll talk to you guys later. Happy Halloween. Goodbye. Do it, Gordon.